Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Pangen, and today I'm actually alone here in the studio as my friend and colleague Niklas Savos, who is usually here, he had to rush to the hospital and now he has become a father for the second time. I'm very happy for him, of course, and I'm excited to say hello to his new family member in a few weeks. In today's episode of Investing by the Books, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Adam Mead, Some of you listeners might remember him from our episode 21, the Omaha special that we did in the US, when we did a short interview after the Berkshire meeting. And for those of you who are not familiar with Adam, he is an American investor and the author of The Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway. The book, which I have here in my hand, is heavy, almost 800 pages, and it tells in detail the story of one of the greatest companies and capital allocators in history. The Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway was first published in 2021, and we are grateful to have its author on the show today. Here comes our conversation with Adam Mead. So hello, Adam, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. And where are you today? Today, I am at home in Derry, New Hampshire, which is about roughly an hour, maybe 40 minutes north of Boston. Is that where you usually operate from? It is. This is home base. And last time we met was in Omaha. And now to begin, how did your passion for investing start? So investing, I guess I'll kind of rephrase the question slightly to start by saying I've always been around business. So I come from a family of small business owners. Uh, my grandfather had a tree service business. My father had a trucking company and a real estate development company. Um, I sold firewood through high school. Uh, I got into motocross during uh, well my early days through college. And through that, I started a, a welding business. So I repaired exhaust pipes for these expensive uh, titanium exhausts on, on dirt bikes. And so it was only natural that I would find investing and so um i just started reading probably everything that i could on on business and you know one one way or another you're, you're going to find yourself to to warren buffett and, and berkshire hathaway um if, if you're even remotely interested in investing or business and how early did you find them yeah i'd say probably pretty late uh i guess you know, certainly compared to, to Buffett, Buffett likes to brag. He was buying his first stock at 11. Um, I was around business at 11, but certainly was not buying stocks at 11. I'd say probably around the age of maybe 17, 18. Because when I, when I turned 18, which is the minimum age to open a brokerage account uh, here in the U.S. anyways, uh, I, I ran, out, ran out and opened a, a brokerage account. So I think probably 16, 17, I started learning about Buffett. And it was like, wait a minute, you know, these guys... What do you mean you don't you don't have to get up and go to work every day? Your money can make money for you. Like I just remember thinking, like, wow, this is this is incredible. So I, I think the first Buffett book, I'm pretty sure the first encounter with Buffett was Robert Hagstrom's The Warren Buffett Way. And I've probably read or listened to that book a dozen times over the last, you know, 20 years or so. It's just a, it's just an incredible book. I've of course read his other books as well. But that one, I just, I think it's just so fundamental. It's so good. It's just so uh, timeless and such a great introduction to Berkshire Hathaway. So I would highly recommend that book. 
uh, even if you've read it before. Go back and reread it. Yeah, your friend uh, Andrew Wagner that we also had on the podcast, he he told us that that was the book that really clicked for him, the one, the first one for him, and that he has also been going back to. And you have also written your own book on uh, Berkshire, The Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway. And this amounts to almost 800 pages. And when we spoke in Omaha, you said that you really lived with the book for five years. So what led you to write it? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I've, even before I wrote the book, and of course, like everybody sort of obsessed with Buffett and uh, Munger and Berkshire Hathaway, devoured everything that I could on the company, read all the annual reports and letters and all of that. And I just sort of pined for something more. You know, even Snowball, which which was a very good book by Alice Schroeder, I, I just kind of always wanted a chronological history of Berkshire. And I would I would read Buffett's letters and he would say things like, you know, the MSR businesses, the manufacturing service and retailing businesses earned, you know, 16, 17% on, on tangible capital. And I'd say, okay, like that's great, but I want to go into the footnotes find out where that number came from. So it really was the book that I never found and always wanted. And if I was a rational writer, you know, I, I, I just started writing this. I didn't pitch it to anyone. I just said, this book needs to be written. And one thing led to another. Uh, and and uh, Chris Bloomstrand, who wrote the foreword to the book, uh, went out and actually found that there's over 200 titles on Buffett and Munger and Berkshire. So you, you'd be kind of crazy to pick that as a topic, but I did. And uh, it's been wonderful. Just uh, took me five years to actually write it. When I, when I started the process, started kind of kicking around all the way through uh, publication in, uh, in 2021. So it's unfortunately now the incomplete financial history of Berkshire Hathaway because a couple of years have gone by, but uh, maybe we'll see an update in uh, in a couple of years. And was there some time during this period when you wrote it that you were thinking like, is it really worth it? Should I give up? Anything like that? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly. I, I think every author goes through that that process. And I, I think it, it took me probably about a year and a half. So I, I it was only at the very end that I connected with Harriman House and they have been a phenomenal partner with the book. So I had hired my own editor. I was going to self-publish this because I wanted it to be my own thing. And it took a year and a half for the editing process. And it was literally, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. I mean, it was just this continual. And, and I'm, you know, here's, here's just a, a little secret, I guess, of my, my life. I, I, was, I was a C, D student in, in English class. I, I was not never grew up thinking I would ever write a book. I didn't consider myself a good writer. So I, I learned a lot during the editing process, but that, you know, there were times where it's like, okay. I remember thinking, I think it was around the mid eighties because the book goes chronologically decade by decade and year by year. I think I was in the mid eighties somewhere. And I said, oh my gosh, I've done all of this and I still have 35 years to go to write, you know, this is, what am I doing? Um, but I'm glad I did. And it's, it's an incredible, uh, you know, I have two kids, but this is really sort of my third, third baby. Yeah. When you did so much work on it, I guess it's some sunk, sunk cost that keeps you going and you don't want to stop and give it all up. Yeah. And, and even, you know, this is another interesting thing that I, I didn't expect was 
I, in writing the book, again, chronologically year by year, but, you know, call it three years or so of just writing, researching, all of that. And so I hadn't really gone back and read my earlier work until the editing process. And when I got to that process and read the whole book cover to cover, basically looking for typos and looking for, you know, sort of at the tail end of the editing process, I actually connected some ideas and said, wow, this is interesting, just reading the whole thing in one go. So I hope, I certainly encourage anyone to go through and and take the journey I took, which was basically 10,000 pages of research material and a couple hundred hours of video and annual meetings and all of that. It's well worth the journey, but I, I hope that I've captured all of that. You know, 800 pages uh, sounds like a lot, but in, in that context, hopefully it's enough to tell that a pretty good story of, of Berkshire Hathaway and, and be a companion to some of the other great books that are out there on the company. I definitely would say so. And as you say, there are about 200 books on, on Berkshire that we can find. Uh, but what do you think is the most surprising thing that you have found that you didn't find in those other materials? Yeah, I guess, you know, I, so I, Buffett encouraged me. I, I was originally going to start the book 10 years before he took over. So my chapters are laid out in, in decade increments. And so Buffett came in in 1965. I said, I'll go back to 1955. And, and go to 64, 65 to 74. And I sent him the first two chapters, which was 55 uh, to 1974. And he said, he wrote back, that was my first uh, sort of communication with, with him on, on the book. And he said, well, geez, you know, it wouldn't it be interesting if you went back and looked at the, the World War II era and sort of this brief temporary profitability that the, the businesses um, benefited from and you know of course if warren buffett's suggesting something i'm gonna i'm gonna go and do it um so that led me to go all the way back to the 1800s but i guess the 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 really interesting thing about the earlier days as the textile industry shrunk we we kind of think of of seabury stanton who was president of berkshire hathaway buffett had this uh, infamous now now famous uh a board meeting where he took control of the company and you know we think of this guy Seabury Stanton as this sort of old curmudgeonly textile guy which he he was it's mostly true but the Berkshire Hathaway management that preceded Buffett was actually pretty rational they they shrunk the business as the industry had shifted to the south and then overseas they shrunk the business and returned 22 million dollars in capital to shareholders and that sounds small today but that was about 40% of Berkshire's beginning shareholders' equity in 1955. So the, the, the management pre-Buffett was acting pretty rationally, and that's actually what caused Buffett to be interested in Berkshire because he thought that he would get bought out. And as we now know, and as the story goes, uh, Seabury Stanton stiffed Buffett for uh, an eighth of a, eighth of a dollar, and uh, the rest is history. Um, so that was an interesting one pre-Buffett. Another interesting thing I found, again, comparing Berkshire's entire history was we know Buffett likes concentrated bets, value investing, focus investing, concentrated uh, investing. What was really interesting was to see the largest single stock investment in each decade was no, no less than about a quarter, I think a 23% 
of uh, Berkshire's equity um, at the time. And the largest by percentage of equity was actually the Illinois National Bank that Berkshire bought in 1969. It was forced to divest of the bank in, uh, in 1980 because of uh, bank holding regulations. But that was 44% of Berkshire's equity capital at the time of the acquisition. So it was this massive, massive bet. Uh, National indemnity, which formed the, the basis of Berkshire's insurance empire today, was 28% of Berkshire's equity capital in 1967. So even that was smaller. Um, but what we've seen over time, and I have a, a table in, uh, in the 50-year wrap-up in, in the year 2014 in the book, uh, just showing each decade the largest uh, both stock market investment and wholly owned subsidiary acquisition. And what we've seen over time is this penchant for concentration has not diminished. And you know we see that today with uh, the Apple holding at 40% of the equity portfolio and still 30% of Berkshire shareholders' equity. So th this hasn't gone away. And it also leads to the next thought, which is, okay, what's next? If if Apple, it takes an Apple to get that that big, what is the next big thing? And it really just shows what Berkshire is um, is up against. But Buffett has has managed the both sides of the balance sheet very well. We we know float is low cost uh, capital, but he really thinks of both sides of the balance sheet independently and will manage has managed them separately. And one thing I found interesting was. In the late 1980s, he borrowed $250 million at 10% and then turned around and invested it in treasuries at about 6.5%. And he even says in his letter, you know, we're losing about $150,000 a week on this. But he thought it was a good time to take advantage of raising capital. So they would raise money in advance of a need. And this is different from pretty much the way the rest of corporate America works, which is we have an acquisition, we have an idea, okay, let's go get financing. But as Buffett says, the ideal time to make an acquisition and the, the ideal time to borrow that money is not necessarily uh, at the same time. And so you see this splitting of the balance sheet and managing it separately, which again, I hadn't really seen anywhere else. Um, and then just lastly, float, everybody says, you know, they, it's been talked about a lot, but how Buffett has used the permanence of float by focusing on underwriting profitability, um, and not only just sort of that basic business, <clears throat> but how by being very patient, he would essentially in 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 um, loose years when pricing was poor. Other insurers were tempted to go out and grab business. Berkshire would just wait and essentially capture that business on the back end by doing reinsurance transactions three, four, five years down the road. So they would take, they would let the pr other primary insurers take those risks, make that bet, and then turn around and basically take that same business with a reinsurance transaction at better pricing. And it was just, it's just so obvious and you look at this and it's just so incredible just how simple it was. But I, I haven't really heard uh, really anybody talk about that. So that was another another one. Interesting points. And the last one there, is that something that 
uh, as a private investor that we can use in some way that kind of thinking to okay to wait and then find another way to to make your money yeah i i think again patience is always great to practice um i've found in my own investing career each cycle i get a little bit more patient you know it's oh stocks went down by 10% you know let's let's go in and buy and then as i've gotten older and matured it's let's let's really wait for these these good deals and um if 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 you're feeling like you need to do something you know pick up the high low list of any any stock or an index and just compare the high and the low in a 12 month period and it's incredible how much even mature stable companies fluctuate in share price over time and so it's just another way of okay let's stay rational let's wait for others to make mistakes um and the idea of having a watch list and, and having multiple companies that you would be okay buying, not getting stuck on one, I have to buy you know XYZ company today or, or this week or add it to this year, having a list of companies that you can just wait, study, let them go on sale, really is, is kind of the Berkshire playbook. And we'll get into your role as an investor a bit later, but if we stay on, on the track of Berkshire Hathaway, and as you talked about, the textile industry was where it began and Berkshire is so much more than textile industry. But um, one of the lessons for me is at least uh, this difference between growth uh, capital expenditures and maintenance capital expenditures. And can you tell us a bit about that in the textile industry and what you learned about that? Sure. Um, so basically, as the, as the textile industry changed, and evolved over time. Uh, really, what was happening was returns on capital were going down, and yet there were instances or opportunities to invest capital that would improve output. And I think it was Charlie Munger talking about this, um, where he says, you know, Buffett would look at this and say, geez, uh, they've invented some new machine and it's going to improve productivity. You know, if this happens, I'm going to, I'm going to close down the textile industry. And it's like, wait a minute. But he was asking the question and alluding to uh, this notion of, you know, and then what? So uh, Buffett's quote is uh, everybody's at the parade and everybody wants to see better. So you get up on your, your tippy toes and Nobody sees better, but everybody's legs hurt. And that was the textile industry where they would make these investments and new technologies would come, but yet over time they would earn terrible returns on capital because there was no, there was nothing protecting that investment. All of the productivity flowed through to uh, the customer. Uh, nothing really, as Munger says, stuck to the ribs of owners. And do you see this happening in other industries today? Yeah, um, not there's there's nothing that comes specifically to mind. Although it, it was interesting, we got a little bit of a case study on when the U.S. tax rate went from 30, 35 to twenty one percent. It wasn't immediately immediately obvious whether that change was going to uh, again pet, get passed through to customers or remain as profits for for business owners. Um, we saw with Berkshire's businesses, a lot of them got to keep that 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 bottom line basically. Um, 
I think perhaps the trucking industry, uh, truckload trucking, uh, sort of the basic commodity type business suffers a, a little bit from this. Uh, but I, I think sometimes it can be hard to tell, but I, I think it is, it's key to really just focus on sort of the bottom line of what we're trying to do as investors is get a return on our capital. So what if, if you're seeing returns on capital decline over time and you're seeing these trends, um, probably better just to find a different horse, just, just kind of bail on the industry. It, it, it's not something that happens overnight, I think. Um, I, I tend to shy away from technology companies and fintech and things like that. Um, but I would imagine that that, or it seems that that happens a lot where it's almost this delusion like, okay, we need to spend this money on marketing and we're making these investments and in intangible assets and somehow they never materialize. And I, I suspect that there's a little bit of that happening. Although, like I said, I'm not, I'm not really an expert and I couldn't tell you. I, I'm sorry, I don't have a specific example that but that, that kind of comes to mind. Yeah, it's an interesting thought because the textile industry was so capital intense and it, it's a commodity business. While these tech companies, they are capital light in one way. I mean, they don't have tangible assets in the same way, but they also, as you say, they invest heavily in people. And uh, of course, they want to have brands and, and build and scale that business. But uh, sometimes you don't see anything on the bottom line and you have to wait a long time before you can see anything. So maybe it's too early to, to say. Another thing that I was thinking about is uh, consolidation, which was also something that the textile industry was uh, facing. And um, it was because there was more and more challenges, of course, and it turned into more conglomerates, uh, which didn't help to make it profitable. And another suffering industry that I come to think of is airlines, which Buffett has pointed out as this fiercely competitive and it's costing him and other investors so much money. And when I listened to the shareholder meetings from 2017, then Buffett was still defending that Berkshire was investing in these four major US airlines. And he saw it more of an industry play and he was comparing this to the railroad industry, which was also terrible for a long, long time until it got consolidated enough to make uh, the remaining players profitable. So what do you think is uh, required for industry cons consolidation to become a long-term competitive advantage? Yeah, it's, it's a really great question. Um, and I'll, I'll do my best to answer it. I'm not sure I have the, the secret sauce here. <clears throat> um, Buffett's quote about uh, a good manager ending up with a poor reputation because they're, they've attached themselves to uh, a poor business, I, I think applies here you know, more or bigger doesn't always equal better or more profitable, uh, as, as we saw in, in the textile industry. <clears throat> I think what's required to make consolidation useful uh, from a shareholder's perspective is for something to change fundamentally. And so with airlines, and I'm, again, by no means expert on the industry, I, I took Buffett's advice and I just kind of stayed away. Um, from what I, what I understand, consolidation allowed greater average utilization of planes. And so it, it rationalized these routes, eliminated some of the worst of this cutthroat competition that kept utilization down. And, you know, of course, it costs the same to fly a plane from A to B, whether it's full or, or half full. And so I, I think that that is what, what happened there. You know, the question really is, you know, pandemic aside, 
what would change that, what would alter that, what would cause new entrants to come back in. I, I don't know. Uh, railroads, it was a combination of relaxing price regulation, uh, productivity investments that, that allowed more volume with less labor. You know, they double stacked the trains, they uh, increased the bridges or, or the, the heights of the tunnels, they reinforced the bridges that allowed a lot less, uh, more, more to be done with less. And there, I think that's more permanent, especially from the competitive uh, standpoint um, because you can't just go build a new railroad today and, and the rights of Ray and, and all of this. Now there, there's recently the, the STB, the surface transportation board has come out with this idea of, well, geez, um, you know, the railroads should share their tracks and that will lower costs for everyone. I, I don't know what, there's always that risk that regulation will harm the industry but i think from a fundamental standpoint that one's that one's protected <clears throat> so something critical has to change there uh, and and one thing that that isn't totally predictable is how the industry participants will act you know will they stay rational and not try to undercut each other will they sort of just allow good profitability to be the norm of the industry or they sort of get irrational and say, no, we need to have market share and we're going to compete on price. And I don't, I don't know if there's a perfect way to predict that. I, I will say from, uh, from my perspective, from a value investors point of view, you don't have to be right day one. I, I think you, you can allow these things to sort of happen and watch these strategic shifts and, and watch. I mean, that's really what you're trying to do. Once you figure out the business, the industry and what's happening, really sort of that, that work that you do next is the strategic type of analysis. And you're really trying to put yourselves in the, the, the shoes of an owner and even a board member and just think, okay, what is strategically happening in the industry? What should we do to react or change? And, and that generally takes time to materialize. And coming back to Berkshire Hathaway, it's really clear how the 1960s and the 1990s, this point of these decades, they were really formative in terms of the growth rate in sales and earnings. And we have seen decreasing returns uh, as Berkshire has grown. And that is, of course, something that Buffett has been clear on for a long time will happen with size. Uh, but can you tell us about the main sources of growth during these formative years and decades? Yeah, there was, um, I, I think the first thing that, that really jumps out is, well, certainly Buffett's capital allocation skills. You know, he came into Berkshire Hathaway with, okay, now that I'm in this business, I'm not going to, it's not a cigar, but I'm not going to be able to sell it back to, to management. I'm going to actually manage this thing. He quickly reallocated that capital to better businesses. And uh, the, the Illinois National Bank was one. Uh, probably the, the biggest source of growth was national indemnity, this platform of insurance, which brought with it the ability to have uh, a huge um, marketable securities portfolio. So he really, really got the best of both worlds. And, you know, part of Berkshire's success, and I think they've even talked about it, um, is, is luck. You know, they, 
Buffett and Munger had the advantage of coming after sort of these crazy conglomerates of the 1960s and all the accounting craziness that they did and just kind of uh, accounting fluff versus actual economics. Uh, they came after that, but before this incredible boom that was, you know, the U.S. economy and things were still inefficient. So Berkshire really got its start in the sweet spot, and that that's a that's a part of it, I think. And, and I, again, I don't think uh, Buffett would deny that. And M and A has, of course, been a huge influence during these years. And Munger has said that Berkshire has made many good acquisitions, but that only a few really moved the needle. So, which do you think he refers to? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, again, so Berkshire has always been sort of this mix of stocks and wholly owned businesses. And again, we saw that right off the bat when Buffett took over and started reallocating some of the capital from the uh, insurance, uh, the uh, the textile business. Um, in the early days, and I'm just kind of using the the '70s as sort of a good launching off point. Um, Stocks were, were were about a hundred percent of Berkshire's equity capital at the time. That rose to about over one hundred and twenty-five percent in the late '90s, and then kind of declined uh, over time. And so, when you kind of think about that, Buffett was able to generate a great return on that capital, and it was equal to Berkshire's equity capital. So if they're earning 15% on the stock portfolio, that translates one-to-one to to, uh, return on equity for Berkshire shareholders. And then on top of that, you have all these operating businesses. Um, So national indemnity, I I think, would probably rank right up there at at the top just from the standpoint of being an insurance platform, giving Buffett this float to invest, and I think probably more important or equally important is the lesson on how to run an insurance business profitably. That really, really solidified the way Buffett approached insurance. And and they created a whole host of insurance companies, all these home state companies in the 1970s. And and some of them failed. Some of them uh, wound up or combined with others. They ran into some profitability issues. It was not easy. So even with sort of, okay, here's the playbook. It was really hard, hard to do, uh, but focusing on profitability first was that key lesson. Uh, Geico, uh, they bought the first half of that business for $46 million over time. Uh, the second half they bought in 1996 for $2.3 billion. So there, again, just sort of supercharging Berkshire's uh, results, float, and profitability, really the best of both worlds. Seas. Um, which they bought in 1972, just a fantastic business in its own right. And then there, again, was the key lesson that good businesses were sort of the new playbook. We're going to get out of the cigar butt by by poor businesses for cheap and resell them uh, and get into holding good businesses over time. And, and again, everything sort of interrelates here. Coca-Cola came from that, the late 80s. Um, Washington Post was a $10 million investment that turned into a 100x, you know, turned into over a billion dollars over time. Um, Scott Fetzer, 1986. I, I think a lot of people don't quite appreciate Scott Fetzer. It's one of my favorite Berkshire acquisitions. Why is that? Yeah, so Scott Fetzer is a, a, a mini conglomerate. So 
its main two businesses were Kirby vacuum cleaners and World Book encyclopedias. Each of those businesses was roughly 40% of, uh, of profits in the early days. And then there were all these other, about 18 other businesses that made up that, that 20% uh, remainder. But that acquisition doubled Berkshire's revenue base um, by adding about $700 million of revenue. Um, they paid a, oh, a little over $400 million for that business, but they dividended about $125 million out right away. So their, their net purchase price of about $285 million, which at the time, again, 20% of Berkshire's equity capital, generated billions of dollars of capital for Berkshire. And what's really interesting is... Um, so Buffett, Buffett says that the CEO, Ralph Shea, uh, is, belongs and, and is in you know, the, the Berkshire Hall of Fame. That business, Scott Fetzer, literally faded to a footnote in, I think, the 2004 annual report. Literally faded to a footnote. It wasn't a huge growth business, but what Ralph Shea did was increased basically capital turnover, was able to get more profits out of the business and return capital to Omaha for reinvestment into other things. Just an incredible business. Uh, um, Kirby was just sold off last year. World Book has struggled. Um, and some of the other businesses are, are kind of plugging along. And they're pretty good businesses. But um, growth, you know, the, the big lesson there is growth doesn't have to be necessarily a part of the equation. It can really be that, that nice capital enter, uh, capital generator. Um, and then probably Berkshire Hathaway Energy as sort of this platform. Again, Buffett has called it staying rich versus getting rich. Um, the, the energy business is sort of deceptively simple. It's a very good business. They earn basically regulated returns of 10, 11, 12% in certain cases and can take all of the capital that's generated and more. They've never paid a dividend since, Ber since Berkshire bought it in 2000. And um, another one of those sort of key, key businesses in the Berkshire, Berkshire history. It's fascinating with that whole scale-up phase, and we see many companies that are going through it and trying to find their way. And you mentioned uh, the funding as one part that uh, was surprising to you, uh, how Buffett acted and uh, borrowed up money already before they had an acquisition and they even uh, paid a lot of interest for it. Uh, are there any other lessons from funding in this scale-up and startup phase uh, that you have learned from Berkshire? Um, yeah, but borrowing in advance uh, was certainly big. The, the use of float. Um, you know, I, I think I think a lot of people sort of still am amazingly don't fully appreciate the Berkshire Hathaway and, and what it what it is. Um, all of the puzzle pieces really are designed to fit together. And so the, the insurance operations provide float for use in the investment portfolio. And that allows, um, th they can use that float to buy whole businesses. And because they operate the insurance business very conservatively and they don't write as much premium volume as they actually could, that allows them to do things more aggressively in other ways. Um, the operating businesses provide stability. I mean, literally the entire railroad, BNSF, is owned by National Indemnity, just churning out five, six billion dollars a year, uh, which makes the insurance business more stable. 
Um, and so this has just been sort of the playbook over the years of just have each piece of Berkshire operate independently and maximize its value. But the whole really is worth more than the sum of the parts. I see people say, well, geez, you know, wouldn't it be great? You know, Buffett dies, whatever. Um, they spin out the energy business or they spin out the insurance business and it's going to be valued at this. And it, it's just a, it's, it's a mistake to, to think that. And it's just so surprising that uh, it, it's still misunderstood uh, today. Yeah, I really like that part uh, where you describe it in the book, why it should not be broken up into pieces. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, again, the, the, the things that I mentioned, and, and really it, it comes down to when you're buying a stock, when you're buying a business, its value is the sum of the cash that it's going to generate over time. And if you just break it down and use pretty simple logic, is breaking up Berkshire Hathaway going to increase those cash flows over the, the life of the remaining life of these businesses? My answer is no. I mean, there may be certain instances where a subsidiary that spun off has, um, you know, uh, people asking questions about it and they, they feel more pressure to operate more uh, efficiently. But I, I, in, in my, uh, when I walk around the, the Berkshire Hathaway meeting the, this past year, I talked to a bunch of the managers and, um, you know, they told me, how, what it was like, one of my main questions was, what is it like to work for Greg Abel, you know, not reporting directly to Buffett? And every single one of them said, you know, Greg asked these great questions and Greg is not just sitting there, you know, sort of doing his thing. He is actively involved in improving and, uh, these businesses and looking at them. And, and I think doing it in a way that's, that's Buffett-like, which is not, geez, why are you doing this and not this? It's, well, geez, you know, your competitor is, is doing this, you know, what have you guys done over here? And, um, I think there's so much good inside Berkshire and, and there's the, the reputational aspect of having people that have built their businesses come to Berkshire to put them in this museum and know that they're not going to be sold. That is worth much more than any spinoff at, you know, some crazy multiple would be uh, over time. I think the reputation is, is worth far more to Berkshire. And you also mentioned all the costs and the time to talk to investors and have different IR services and so on. Yeah. Again, another, as Berkshire has bought, I don't know this number, but uh, dozens of public companies and, and turned them private and they don't have to have long board meetings. They don't have to do all these uh, preparations for quarterly conference calls or meet with investors. Uh, I was looking at a, a pretty mature, established, very good business uh, just recently. And I'm always, I'm always just so shocked to see on the, on the investor relations page, how many times they do these uh, conferences. They go to these conferences, they're presenting at this conference and they're presenting at the you know, JP Morgan investor day thing, or it's just all of that is so much time that could be spent building the business and protecting the business. Um, and that's something that these managers don't have to do within Berkshire Hathaway. And when you say all the reasons for why Berkshire has become what it is, it sounds 
almost simple. Uh, very logic, the playbook. Uh, but of course, uh, Berkshire and Buffett and Munger, they have also faced a lot of challenges. And uh, one factor that had a big impact on the general business environment during this like scale-up phase was inflation, which was uh, very high during the 1970s and, and peaked at 12.4% in 1980, as you write in the book. Uh, what are your lessons from, uh, from how Buffett and Berkshire dealt with this high inflation? Yeah, so I think there's, there's two... Two things come to mind. One is sort of the more general coping, if you will, and the other is insurance, which was and is Berkshire's main economic engine. So during that inflationary period, it was it was really two two types of inflation. They faced the general price inflation uh, that made repairing vehicles, repairing buildings, uh, repairing humans, you know, as medical advances got better and more expensive, that caused additional cost inflation for insurance companies. And then there was this other element of uh, social or judicial inflation where a company agreed with the insurance company to insure the deal for this, and that was what in the contract, and then it went to a jury trial, and the jury said, nope, we're going to award way more in, uh, in compensation to this individual. Um, the way they dealt with that was sometimes shortening uh, their uh, renewal periods from six months, from a year to six months, increasing pricing where they could. There were a number of years where they just could not keep up, and part of that was because of regulation. Part of it was because of uh, competition. So that was the insurance side, and then on the other side is just businesses. So insurance just destroys the profits that that businesses generate and really skews the economics for owners. When you are paying a tax on inflated earnings, you have to pay Uncle Sam, and then you have to turn around and reinvest in that business just to sort of maintain your your spot and maintain your your productive capacity. You really get nothing as an owner. And so the, the time to think about inflation is yesterday it's it's just always and and i think berkshire has done a great job of that over time you should not be thinking about inflation today or you know three months ago or six months ago when it sort of first started coming back up you know as a long-term value investor that holds businesses holds stocks for the long pull you really should be buying businesses expecting that inflation is going to happen because there's just this bias in every government, every monetary system over history to inflate or, or, or devalue the currency. And so I think, again, seize candy, that was a, a, a perfect example of, of um, a business that could combat inflation. Coca-Cola, I mean, you just look at, look at, at Berkshire's portfolio, it's, it's chock full of these businesses that will do just fine uh, in inflation. And moving over to your role as a practicing capital allocator, uh, you are the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Mead Capital Management. So can you tell us a bit more about your business and what you do? Sure. So everything I do today, I, I spent uh, 10 years in commercial credit. So that was sort of my continuation uh, as an investor, um, lending to businesses. And then uh, 2014, I actually started Mead Capital. I went full-time at that in 2020, 
so I have a couple pieces of what I do today. And, and again, everything is kind of part of the whole. Mead Capital Management is where I have a fiduciary duty to manage money for my clients who uh, I, I basically run um, I run separate accounts. So every every account is mirrored. So it kind of looks like a hedge fund, but every, every uh, client has their own account. Uh, I have a value investing newsletter called Watchlist Investing. And that's really my research process. Um, it's a paid subscription. There's also a free sub stack, uh, but it's where I put ideas out there to an audience, um, some of which pay me uh, to, to deliver them value. So I'm getting that feedback. That's really my, my research process. And then as a compilation or as a um, companion to the book, I have uh, a website called The Oracle's Classroom, um, which is sort of this compilation of, of timeless investing wisdom that's centered on, on Berkshire Hathaway. I also have a YouTube channel as well where I take clips of the annual meeting and, and kind of distill all these timeless lessons. So that's kind of the three legs of, of the stool. You know, I, just, I call myself a practicing capital allocator actually manage money for clients, the research, and incorporating that timeless wisdom. It all is kind of part of a piece. And do you have any habits on, on a daily basis that helps you to navigate? Yeah, I, I always come back and I sometimes will write down a little sticky you note, know, you know, focus. And it's, 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 really, it's really hard with everything that's going on to, to stay focused. And you have kids at home and you have all this. Um, my habits are trying to trying to understand myself and when I do things best. So I generally try to turn my phone off and just focus in the mornings where I have the most energy. I can do research, um, and then it it varies week to week. But I, I think that's probably the, the biggest one. And then just you know one one area where I disagree with Buffett. Uh, I think he's come around to this over time, but He's, he's basically said, you know, a calorie is a calorie and he's famous for eating ice cream for breakfast and <laughs> chowing down on five pounds of seized candy during an annual meeting. Um, I, I eat my broccoli. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's important to take care of your body, take care of your mind, um, get, get good sleep. You know, your, the way you treat yourself today is going to impact how you function tomorrow and so i try to just keep this chain going you know where i i treat myself well and just understand sort of the ebbs and flows and everybody has a bad day but um uh again just kind of there's, there's so much that i do that no matter sort of how i'm feeling there's always something to do that's productive it's kind of what i've I found we also focus a lot on health here in, in the office and in our private lives. Uh, but is there something else you do differently from uh, from Buffett? Probably, I think again another thing there is I'm and I got I uh, thank Guy Spear for this insight. You, know, you don't you don't have to be Warren Buffett and you have this this bar that's set so high where okay I need to read you know ten hours a day and you know, understand all these businesses. And I, I've decided, decided a long time ago, not to, I, I think Buffett sort of neglected his family in the, the early days. And that's something I'm not willing to do. If I'm slightly, uh, a slightly worse investor, because I do that, I'm willing to make that trade. I think, you know, I can be a pretty good investor and still 
be able to get the kids off the bus and do different things. And um, that's probably another another area where I, I differ from Buffett. And speaking about setting a high bar, I guess from studying Berkshire, you really have a high bar for your investments. But how do you tackle the situation of seeking perfection, but also settle for less? Yeah, I guess, uh, what, what do you mean by settling for less there? It's hard to find the, the perfect investment. There's always some some flaw, something you have to live with, mm. at least in my experience. Yeah, no, uh, okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I guess, my you know, my, my philosophy is to own better businesses and and again generally when you look at you look at Berkshire's investment in Apple you didn't have to get in on the ground floor it was it had such a long and exponential curve that you could be late you could take your time study the business see where it was going see the economics see the moat still get on that train and do well over time so i I remind my I use that example a lot and I just remind myself that you, you you don't have to do you don't you don't have to have 25 perfect investments over a lifetime. Really the key is to avoid mistakes and by focusing on studying businesses over time. I I I sort of liken what I do to um you know there's sort of two there's sort of two camps. One is um, the, the people who, where, where a market or a company gets into trouble, stock price goes down, they rush in, they try to, they try to analyze it. They try to figure out what's going on. They try to figure out the value and they try to buy it at a good price. I don't think I can do that. I liken that to your neighbor's house is on fire. They come over to your house and they say, Adam, you can buy my house for X. And I have to think, okay, you know, is the fire department right around the road? Are they tied up? You know what else is there? You know, 10, 10 gallons of gasoline in, inside the house that things going to blow up. I, you know, you you're just there's so many questions, and it's so hard to be good at that. At least in my from 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 for me, I I'd rather take my time to get to understand the company and to continue this house analogy, which may be a poor one. You know, you you study your your neighbor's house, you go down to the town to to pull the, the building permits and see that it's made out of you know, block and they have firewalls and the fire department's right around the corner and there's a fire hydrant right out front. Now you can act rationally. Now you've done your homework up front. And so I think the combination of focusing on good businesses, taking your time to understand them and just continually try to question yourself. And if new information comes up, just put that into the sort of revaluation process um, has generally led to better results for me over time. Now I've made a lot of mistakes <laughs> over the years. I have actually have a file I called the folly gallery that I put all my all my mistakes in. So I I take Munger's advice to rub my nose in my own mistakes. Um it's it's hard, but it's it's um it's rewarding too in in, in different senses. I like the house analogy that you provide there. But uh, do you actually do that? Do you go to the house and look at it and go inside and, and do all that field work? Or because Buffett has been criticized for being this desk investor, he's sitting in his Omaha office and reading and he's not so much out in the real world. Uh, are you doing that, the, the real scuttlebutt work, so to say, or the sleuthing to find this physical evidence? Yeah, a, a little bit. Um, not to the extent of, you know, there's always that risk. You go out to meet management and you communicate with them. You're you're getting a biased view. 
Um, I guess it's just more of a sense of always being curious. So anybody you talk to, even if they're not an investor, maybe they work for a company or they're a supplier to a business. I, I think there's just so many ways to get at that scuttlebutt. Today, I think we have such a leg up in terms of access to certain things. So I just subscribe to In Practice, where they do interviews with uh, people in in businesses. I think that's an incredible service. Um, and and really just understanding and just following the business over time. I, I just I find it so much more enjoyable to follow a business over time. Even if you even if I don't own the company, it's just really interesting to just just focus on a few I mean that's 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 watch list investing that's what I do just build a list and just follow them and you learn all these little nuances over time that you you wouldn't pick up or you you by keeping it in the forefront of your brain you're sort of always thinking about it and you know going out to the Berkshire meeting every year um I mean I, I had a conversation with Tom Russo this year uh, about the beer industry and and just a couple of comments that he made, a couple things clicked in my mind. And you don't get that if you're just going from A to Z to to B to M. I mean, you're just all over the place. I think really just focusing on a few industries and even this is sort of getting into a tangent here, but focusing on things that you're interested in, I think also helps because if you're not innately curious about it, you're not going to do a good job as an investor so you don't have to you don't have to stand understand every industry you you can really just go to what what interests you and um and that that curiosity i think helps you over time and, and your knowledge compounds over time and what type of businesses usually interest you is it the copycats of uh, berkshire are there any such companies we know markel and a few others is it that type of businesses or what are you looking at so su- again, surprisingly, I have not, I, I don't consider myself, Mar- Markel is probably the closest mini Berkshire. Um, you know, there's Allegheny, uh, there's Fairfax. I, I don't, I haven't, I'm not, I'm not an expert on those businesses. Um, I really have just focused on, on Berkshire Hathaway. I think my circle of competence certainly includes banks, but I'm very, very uh, particular about what I want in a bank because I've spent time inside of a bank and I know how they operate and I know how things can kind of get hidden or just uh, problems can kind of get buried below the surface. Um, I, I, I like businesses where I can understand sort of the unit economics, um, how many units flowing through, you know, whether it's a, a fastenal you know, through a certain number of stores, um, looking at um, Boston Beer Company or Heineken or uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev, you know, how much volume they're putting through, how many barrels of beer they're producing. Those those businesses where I can really understand and see the economics working over time, I, I think I can I can do a pretty good job at. Um, there's there's so many that I, I don't quite understand. Um, I spent some time, again, I spent 10 years in banking and I, I learned how hard it is to replace a bank core. It's, it's almost literally like getting open heart surgery. Um, you, everything is connected to a bank core. So I looked at Jack Henry as one of my deep dives for, for watch list investing. And 
they have their sort of legacy core bank bank software and then they have this other business in payments and i i feel like that's straddling the edge of my circle of competence i only understand basically half of that business i really understand how the bank core is very sticky i don't know where they're going to go on the payments side so it's it's very subtle and i've actually found as i've gotten more mature and i think a better investor my circle of competence has actually shrunk over time and i think i think that's okay i think that's a good thing yeah i guess if you say it like that then it sounds like your circle of competence wasn't really that big that you thought it was before yeah it it wasn't uh it wasn't as well defined as as it should have been yeah that's a that's a good way to put it um but are there any other common cognitive biases that you have realized in your uh files of mistakes yeah i think um i'm i'm an analyst at heart i like the detail i like the spreadsheets um sometimes going down those rabbit holes i can get lost in some of the numbers and and uh you had my friend andrew wagner on your show recently wonderful interview by the way um andrew has has degrees in economics he's he's more of he's not a macro investor uh but he 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 sticks to sort of the bigger picture over time and i can kind of get down into the weeds and so having andrew as a friend really helps me with that but i am definitely one that goes can go too deep uh at the expense of the bigger picture and it's something that i've had to to kind of learn over time um the other one just sort of by virtue of what i do certainly with watchlist investing publishing my research some of which uh, are companies that i own there's that consistency and commitment bias where i really have to guard against okay i'm saying that i think this thing is a good company and i think it's worth x i don't need i shouldn't maintain that view if something changes i haven't really run into this i think i've picked pretty good companies over time um but even subtle things like should i should i reevaluate this or this new new piece of information came to light uh, well no i wrote about that you know geez it's it's still a good business um, i don't have to worry about that i think uh, what was it the darwin's advice to write down the thing that discon- you're disconfirming evidence i i think it's something i should probably do more of to combat that and the first point you you mentioned is interesting by going into the details and and your book is really an example of that you go into the financial details of of berkshire hathaway for all its lifetime and you even go back to the beginning of the textile industry and at Reda we have this quality rating where we evaluate every company and we follow them based on these three main categories so it's people business and financials and as i said your book really includes many important aspects of the business but as the title suggests it's also this financial aspect of berkshire that is in the limelight uh, so while going through all this material was there something you learned about accounting because it's a big part of it Yeah, accounting as Buffett says is is the language of business and you you really need to know it. Uh and and I think by studying Buffett just does such a good job of explaining accounting over time and the accounting rules that change and um there was one one instance I forget which year fairly fairly recently I think. Um Anyways, the, the year's not important, but he, he literally goes down and says, uh, debits and credits. Like 
this is getting debited, this is getting credit. It just literally lays out the T account, which I just thought was incredible. Um, but I, I think in looking at Berkshire's history over time, and even just the, the history of, of accounting over of Berkshire's history, how much it's changed over time. So one example was early days, securities were valued at cost on the balance sheet versus market. Uh, and then oddly enough, that sort of started to change in the, I think the 1970s, where in only insurance companies, it was valued at market and the rest of any other balance sheet, it was, it was valued at, at cost. Just these like odd, odd things. Um, so it's kind of this quirkiness of accounting. Um, another example is, um, so Berkshire has done a couple of acquisitions over time where they've purchased a controlling interest and then they've gone back and they've bought more. So they did this with Shaw, Shaw, uh, Shaw Industries, the carpet manufacturer, um, in 2004. Um, they, um, they bought Marmon in a couple different chunks, um, Iscar, IMC, uh, a couple different chunks. They're now doing this with um, uh, Pilot Flying J. Um, in any event, when you when you buy a business for more than the equity that's on the books, you book goodwill. Okay, that's pretty pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Well, these additional purchases, instead of booking additional goodwill, that excess of purchase price gets right gets written off immediately. It's just like this odd accounting quirk. Um, again, Buffett does a good job explaining it, but it just sort of highlights you, you really have to use the accounting as your language, as your guide, but it's, it doesn't do the thinking for you. Um, and and uh, a last example I'll put out there is with um, reinsurance. So with uh, retroactive reinsurance, the premium is generally less than the future expected loss because you have this time value of money where you're getting a premium up front, you're insuring this, uh, this risk. And even though you expect to pay out more over time, you get use of this premium up front. Um, with retroactive reinsurance, you put that excess loss on the books as a deferred charge and you amortize it into earnings. If you write, um, if you write an excess reinsurance contract, it's the same economics. You're getting that same upfront premium with future expected losses, except the, the loss is charged to expense immediately. So, Again, that's sort of a very specific to Berkshire insurance, uh, but it just highlights these little quirks over time that you sort of have to, one, pay attention to to understand the economics, but two, understand how the accounting of it might have changed over time. Yeah, and Berkshire is, of course, a special company with many divisions and many special businesses. But when you look at other businesses, it might also be an opportunity for you, I guess, if you really know the language and, and you can see things that the market or other investors are missing. Is that something that you benefit from, you think? I, I think so. I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it. I, I would say that although accounting is a language and learning another language can be, can be difficult, I forget how Buffett put it exactly, but he, he says, if, if you don't understand it, it's not you, it's the management. You read Berkshire's, I, I would just encourage anyone to, to pick up. Don't, don't be daunted by how thick it is or some of the language you see. Just pick up an annual report, 
of, of Berkshire Hathaway. And just you just read it, and there's so much clear language. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be complex. So I think for me, when I see complexity, when I see, like, wait a minute, I, I don't understand this, or why is this number over here? It's a sort of a red flag to me to say, wait a minute, you know, this this is not this is not me. Um, I mean, read read the Fastenal annual report. That's another good one. Um, there's a couple of these companies out there where you read and it's just plain language. Just here's what we're doing. Here's why this is this. And um, it's it's management's job to do that communicating to the shareholder base. And it's okay if you have uh, questions. And I'd act, again, another little tip, just email or call investor relations and ask them a question. I've done that numerous times. You don't have to be a hedge fund manager or, you know, licensed or what. Just, just, email and say, hey, you know, geez, I was wondering about this number. And uh, nine times out of 10, you're going to learn something about the company and, and probably about accounting too. Good advice. And for the last part of uh, the podcast, we always talk about books and you took on one of the most demanding tasks when uh, writing the complete uh, financial history of Berkshire Hathaway. So we are curious to hear if you want to write another book and when we can expect a new edition of, of this one. <laughs> kind of like when you start to have kids and you know your parents well or you know you get married and, oh well, geez when when are the kids coming when's the next coming <laughs> um still still uh exhausted from this one um no i i would i would say probably a second edition of uh of the complete financial history of berkshire hathaway i i kind of in my mind think that it would would be nice to round out it's probably like in, in somewhere in 2025. So the way that the chapters go, uh, the next one would end in 2024, which if Buffett's still around, will be uh, 60 years at the helm since 19, 1965. Um, so I, I'd say that's that's very likely that that will happen. Um, possibly a book, I've kind of kicked it around with a couple different people of taking, basically making the the tome the the door stopper that is this first book a little bit more accessible to sort of the, the everyday person just kind of distilling the key lessons um, of Berkshire's history those timeless lessons maybe with some current examples um, make it a little bit more accessible uh, I kind of I'm on the fence it's like you know do we really need another investing book out there I, I haven't quite decided but that that's one I've been kind of thinking about. And is there any book that not even you would want to write, but you would like to read it? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Munger has said if he taught a business class, he would take 100 case studies, I think of good businesses, but also maybe failed businesses. So maybe just call it both. 100 case studies of really good businesses and failed businesses and go through those case studies. And you know, one of those key lessons that you learned and, and so forth. Um, I'll, so this, this idea was, was actually Jake Taylor's. I'll, I'll give him full credit for this. He had the idea of taking Buffett and Munger's predictions over time and, and seeing how they've, they've panned out, you know, just little offhanded comments, you know, like I wouldn't expect interest rates to stay low for so long, or, you know, I, you know, this, this business should do this over time, just little things like that. You could go through and, and just kind of see what their predictive uh, capacity 
is over time. I thought that was kind of an interesting one. Yeah, and when we had Jake Taylor on in the podcast, it was episode two. Then he said that he would like to have a book on uh, all the compensation programs and how, how Buffett and Munger has been thinking about compensation. But that is almost impossible to to gain that information. And that's, you asked the last question, I think, in 2018 on the AGM. And that was a similar one. Yeah, that, that's that's another great one. Uh, I, I would love to get in there and I tried to tried to suss that out with that question. Yeah, it was the very last question of the day, and Munger kind of cut Buffett off. No, we don't want to reveal these secrets. Uh, but if if you go back, and I've highlighted some of them uh, on my YouTube channel, I've I've made a playlist um, where where the question has actually been asked a couple times over the years, and uh, I've gone through like when I was writing the book. Um, so because Berkshire Hathaway Energy has publicly issued debt, they file their own 10K. I was actually able to find the compensation agreement with Greg Abel and David Sokol at the time. Um, and it kind of, what I've kind of sussed out from their comments over time and even talking to some of the managers at, at the Berkshire meeting is it's based on the economics of the business. And, and what sort of throws me for a loop, it's like, well, we made this, you know, Buffett talking, we made this deal with, um, you know, so-and-so. You know, it was two paragraphs long and it's been good for 40 years. It's like, well, okay. So clearly it wasn't tied to some specific profit number, but I think it really is tied to the economics of the underlying business, how much capital they use, um, something that scales with the business. Um, and then the compensation, if you look at the compensation structure of uh, Todd, Todd Combs and Ted Weschler, the two uh, investment managers, they're, they're compensated 80% of what they do, 20% of the other guy, and it's they get 10% of their outperformance over the S&P over time. And I've I've noodled that over time and, and have said, geez, that's a brilliant way to structure it because it scales over time. If they're managing a billion dollars and they outperform the S&P by 10%, you know, they're going to get 10% of that or 1%, you know, 1% of, of a billion. Or if they're managing $100 billion, but their margin shrinks, the absolute dollars grow because of that. And so it's, it's completely scalable. So they, it, it just, so much of Berkshire Hathaway is just simplicity. And I think that's where a lot of people get tripped up, where I get tripped up over time is just keep it simple, <laughs> right? Um, but it, it's wonderful. And that's why I think, obviously I'm biased here, but I, I think everybody should study Berkshire Hathaway. Um, I don't think it will ever be irrelevant to, to business and investing, certainly not in my lifetime. And you mentioned the Warren Buffett way as one great book on the subject. Uh, I see a lot of books behind you. Do you have any other recommendations for books for our listeners, not only Berkshire related? Oh, sure. So I, I'm I'm very much of the Charlie Munger mind. Uh, I really like Poor Charlie's Almanac and getting this this worldly wisdom and thinking through, you know, business economics through the lens of ecosystems in nature. I mean, it just, it's so uh, resonant. It just resonates with how the, how the world works. So I, th I think latching on to Charlie Munger will take you down a, a wonderful rabbit hole. And if, if you buy poor Charlie's almanac, he has dozens of book recommendations in that, which I've, I've gone out and, and read pretty much all of them. Um, Gosh, put me on the spot here. I really like Peter Bevelin's Seeking Wisdom from uh, Darwin to Munger. Business biographies are good too. Uh, I just finished uh, Walter Isaacson's uh, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci. 
again, just just kind of exposing yourself to some different different thoughts, different ideas, sort of being a, a polymath. And I think Buffett likes to say that he's all business all the time, and Munger's the Munger's the sort of worldly wise one. But when you when you, I mean, how many times have you heard Buffett? He quotes uh, Bertrand Russell or some other philosopher or something. He he understands a lot more of you know this sort of basic elementary worldly wisdom that I think he lets on, and um, the more that you can go down that path, think through first principles, um, read a lot of history. I think history is another one that, again, it's not it's not we might get a different angle from a current writing of it, but generally it doesn't change. You can learn these lessons, timeless lessons. Uh, Manias, Panics, and Crashes. That's another one that just came to mind. Kindleberger, a uh, very good book. Um, I actually, so, well, that's a good, uh, just prompted a thought. If you go to brkbook.com, uh, which is shortcut to the Oracle's Classroom, I do have a book recommendations page. So I'll, I'll, um, I'll use that as my cop-out for my book recommendations. Perfect. We'll put that in the show notes. And uh, how old are you now, if I may ask? Sure. I'm 36. It seems like you have done so much over such a short time and uh, hopefully you'll have many, many more decades to learn and grow and develop as an investor and a person. So what are your ambitions if you're 92 like like Buffett? Where, where would you like to be? <laughs> Those easy questions. Well, certainly living that long would uh, would be wonderful. And um, I, I really... I really think his his advice, his his thinking of when you get to be that old, you you really you want to you want to have the people around you love you, and you know it's not it's not all about the money. And, and I really think that's it's an overarching lesson to to take take away. And and um, again, I, I think so many people should study Buffett just for the life lessons. There's so much so much more there. My ambitions, I I work best alone I, I i'm not trying to not trying to grow mead capital to some billion dollar business or something I'm, I'm really trying to be the best investor for myself and my clients and so um i want to have enough money to live on have a, a long runway of above average compounding ahead of inflation um but I, i'm really I, i'm just i'm trying to find that I'm trying to be the best version of myself, the best investor, and, and I'm not really, I'm not willing to trade higher personal earnings, you know, just to go out and sell myself. Oh, I can, I can generate this and get all these assets under management and have this huge business. That's not really what I'm, I'm trying to do. I, I want to have, want to enjoy what I do. Do good for the people that I, I have, uh, that have trusted me to manage their capital. And as you know, being 36, if I have 40. 50 years, maybe uh, runway ahead of me, starting small, you know, at some point size becomes an acre. And um, yeah, I think, I think that's it. With, uh, with your broccoli, I hope you will have a, have a long runway to go. <laughs> so lastly, where can our audience follow you if they want to invest or, or learn about everything that you do? I mentioned uh, brkbook.com, which is the Oracle's classroom. That'll redirect you there. Um, I've kind of, kind of slimmed down. I tried to do all these social media things and it just became too much. So I, I pretty much hang out on Twitter. Uh, my handle there is BRK underscore student. Uh, watchlistinvesting.com is uh, is uh, both linked to, to deep, the deep dives that I do, the paid version, 
as well as uh, a, a free sub stack that I put out from time to time. And if uh, listeners are interested just for this this show here, I, I'm willing to offer uh, 10% off your first year of watchlist investing deep dives uh, with the code REDEYE, R-E-D-E-Y-E. Perfect. Adam Mead, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Investing by the Books podcast to talk about you and your great book, The Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway. You're very welcome. This is a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing. Thank you.